Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast in partnership with McGraw-Hill Medical. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, Dr. Joyce Sow, and myself, Blake Smith. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome back to Run the List. This is your host, Walker Red, and I'm here today with Naveen Kumar to discuss what we think is a really high yield topic, albeit we're biased because Naveen is an attending gastroenterologist and I'm a gastroenterology fellow. But we think that the topic of specifically non-variceal upper GI bleeding is super relevant for any medical student or any intern on the wards. And so this is, as Blake discussed last time, a sort of reunion of Naveen and I after a few years ago when we initially recorded this episode. And I think now I bring a little bit of a different perspective, having been a consult fellow for at least a year. And I'm just really looking forward to hearing Naveen kind of rehash some of the pearls he shared with me initially a few years ago when he was teaching me as a new intern. Thanks for joining us again, Naveen, and really looking forward to recording today. Yeah, thanks, Walker. It's always a pleasure to teach via the Run the List podcast platform. And like you said, this is a very important topic. And I think what we're doing this new season is we're doing a little deeper dive and trying to introduce a little bit more evidence. So hopefully this will be relevant, not just to med students and interns, but also residents, even fellows and attendings, honestly, on, on internal medicine. So very excited to do it. Let's go ahead and run the list. Perfect. So let's imagine you're an intern who gets paged about an admission from the emergency department. You call back and the ED resident says, I have a 63-year-old male down here with hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease. He's presenting with a couple days of melana and he denies any history of known prior GI bleed and doesn't have any chronic liver disease from what I can tell. He's stable right now. His vitals show a heart rate of 98. His blood pressure is 110 over 70, which may be a little bit on the low side for him. His respiratory rate is normal. He looks non-toxic on exam, though he does look a little bit pale. The meds he's been taking include aspirin, metformin, metoprolol, and lisinopril. So that's the story you get from the ED. They're calling about a medicine admission. And, you know, as the student or intern helping admit this patient, we would certainly want you to be familiar with how the gastroenterologist thinks through GI bleeding so that you can be prepared when you call a consult if needed. And remember that there are a few initial branch points in how we think about and in many ways risk stratify patients coming in with a chief complaint of melanoma. Often this is happening simultaneously, but Naveen, just if you could help kind of outline and explain your initial approach and how you as an expert in this area think through a patient presenting like this. Absolutely. So Walker, you know, the first thing I think about is, is the patient hemodynamically stable or unstable? And the way I make that assessment is I first look at the vital signs. There's a reason why we call them vital signs. And so they're, they're critically important in any patient presentation, but particularly in a patient who has a concern for upper GI bleeding. So when I'm looking at the vital signs, I pay particular attention to the heart rate. I want to see, is there any evidence of resting tachycardia that would reflect significant hypovolemia from the bleeding presentation? I also, uh, you know, when looking at the heart rate, you mentioned that this patient is on metoprolol. So I want to think, is there, are there on any medications that may mask uh, resting tachycardia because they are beta blocked? So that is one. 
look at the heart rate. Number two is I look at the blood pressure. And of course, I want to look if there's any evidence of hypotension. And you brought up the fact of looking at the patient and where their blood pressure is in relation to where they previously tend to be. And so it's helpful to know if their systolic blood pressure is 110, but they normally are in the 160s, 170s. That is a big difference compared to someone who's in the 110s and normally is in the 110s or 120s. Then after looking at those initial triage vital signs, I definitely want to trend and see how those vital signs hopefully improve with initial resuscitative measures such as IV fluid, um, as well as blood transfusion, which we'll get into in a little bit. And then if they're stable, if I'm feeling good about where the vital signs are, then I kind of start thinking about, okay, what are the first steps we have to do in management? If they're unstable, I need to move quickly. And what by move quickly, I mean, we need to make sure they get resuscitated adequately as soon as possible. We need to really fully assess their mental status. And if there's any concern for altered mental status, or if they're having significant hematemesis in the emergency room, these patients need to go straight to the ICU where they can get a higher level of care, often requiring intubation before we as GI can intervene. So just to, just to summarize that piece, the first step is assessing are they hemodynamically stable or unstable, and then the management kind of follows from there. As part of the initial resuscitative measures, you know, we always talk about two large bore peripheral IVs being placed. And the reason why we like large bore peripheral IVs is that they actually have better flow rates than central lines do. And we could go way back to physics and talk about resistance and how that relates to uh, length and diameter of the catheter. But the basic issue is that a peripheral IV has a much shorter length than a central line. And so you can get much better flow through a shorter, larger bore peripheral IV that has a larger diameter than you could through a central line. So that's why we say two large bore peripheral IVs, get the best flow we can for resuscitation. For someone who you're, you're concerned they're having an upper GI bleed, you wanna make sure you're covering the potential etiologies such as peptic ulcer disease. And we do that by starting an IV proton pump inhibitor or PPI twice daily. And then you obviously wanna make them NPO. I think, you know, we always think about NPO because they may need a procedure, but you can also think about it potentially as a therapeutic measure because if you are not using your gut, there's gonna be less blood flow to the gut. So definitely do not wanna activate the gut by having the patient eat, which would send more blood to the source where it's actually bleeding from. So NPO, IV, PPI, BID, and two large bore peripheral IVs. That's kind of like the mainstays of the initial management when the patient's still in the emergency room. Then I honestly take a diagnostic timeout and think, okay, what could change my management? And the main thing that could change my management, management based on diagnosis at this point is if this patient has a variceal bleed. So we are going to talk about this that further in our next episode. But just to say real quickly, I look at the history I look at the labs and I look at imaging to see is there any uh, potential underlying liver disease that would make this patient be higher risk for a variceal bleed versus a non-variceal bleed, which we are largely talking about in today's episode. Thinking a little bit more cognitively at this point, after I've assessed whether or not they have a risk for a variceal bleed, I then try to start localizing where this bleed could be coming from. Let's say we've settled on that this is a non-variceal upper GI bleed. I really like the anatomical approach, the anatomical framework for thinking about etiology. So based on history, you know, if the patient has dysphagia or odynophagia, I'll start localizing to an esophageal source of bleeding. If they have epigastric pain, I'll think this is more gastric in etiology. And then combination of the stool quality as well as rectal exam, looking for the presence of melanoma, that again will kind of 
clinch the diagnosis of being of this being an upper GI bleed, um, and we'll move forward from there. And then the last thing I want to mention before I kick it back to you, Walker, is that it's really important to look at the medication list. There are two reasons to look at the medication list. One is that it's going to help you understand how severe this in this presentation may be. If they are on any anticoagulants, that will increase the risk of the severity of the bleed, right? Because their blood is thin from the medication. And then also I like to look at the medications to see if there's any risk factors for particular causes of upper GI bleeding, like NSAIDs would be an important uh, medication to look for when I'm thinking if this patient may have a peptic ulcer bleed. And then lastly, kind of getting back to talk about anticoagulants or antiplatelets, in almost all cases, we're going to hold those medications. And then if they're having a life-threatening bleed, we're actually going to think about reversing them as well. So look at the medication list um, while cognitively thinking about what the possible etiologies are and medically making the diagnosis of upper versus um, lower GI bleed using that information we just talked about. Thanks for walking us through that approach, Naveen. That's super helpful. And just to highlight a couple things that he was initially mentioning, one aspect being just having a low threshold if you need the ICU and you may need to protect the patient's airway, um, especially for us to be able to perform endoscopy safely. That's something that we're thinking about from the beginning, where not only whether the patient needs a procedure, but where it can be performed safely. And then that just to, again, stress the importance of that large bore peripheral IV and just making sure that you as the team, um, you know, if the nurse is having difficulty placing it, someone actually is able to come and get it done. And um, the same goes for the medications, right? If the patient can't tell you their medications, sometimes it takes that extra step of getting some collateral history to help clarify what they may have been taking. Um, and so I really appreciate you kind of sharing your initial approach with us, Naveen. Great. Okay, Walker, now that you survived first year of GI fellowship, I know you have even a few more points to add about hemodynamic stability, how we think about that, as well as uh, the strategies of localizing the bleed. So why don't you share a few things you learned from this past year? Perfect. So I first learned a couple of these pearls from Univine when I was in residency. And now whenever I have learners on service and we're seeing consults together and considering GI bleed, these are some of the things I really like to share. You already mentioned, you know, the importance of vital signs, and that can be actually like a window into how much blood the patient may have lost. So if they're if they do have resting tachycardia, that can be a sign that they've maybe lost 15% or less of their blood volume. Something that you know needs to be considered, but the patient may be somewhat more stable. That being said, it's going to take a lot of blood loss before they're actually showing a resting hypotension. Up to 40% of blood volume needs to be lost before you're just going to have true hypotension when the patient's at rest. So a good other exam maneuver to consider is getting a set of orthostatic vital signs in the emergency department or wherever the patient is, because then at between 15 to 40% of blood volume loss, you can actually show an orthostatic hypotension. So that's going to be a good way to help risk stratify how stable the patient may be. In addition, it's important just to pause for a second and take the patient as a whole in their age, their frailty, their cardiopulmonary comorbidities to, to help you think about how high risk they are and already thinking what the sort of risk benefit of doing an invasive procedure may be, risk benefit sort of discussion. And then again, it's helpful to have your differential anatomically as Naveen just laid out, but just even separating upper GI bleed from lower GI bleed, there's a few pearls that are really helpful to remember. The first of those is when you look at the labs, looking for the BUN to creatinine ratio. 
that BUN to creatinine ratio of greater than 30 to 1 actually has a likelihood ratio of 7.5 positive likelihood ratio for an upper GI bleed source. And even past that, often in GI, we do kind of glance at the BUN as just a rough estimate of where it was previously, where it is now, what the BUN trend is looking like with resuscitation. Then, as Naveen already pointed out, melana on history or even better, a rectal exam also has a likelihood ratio of five for an upper GI bleed. And then one thing you can get on history or see on exam is blood clots in the stool actually makes an upper source less likely. It has a likelihood ratio of 0.05 for an upper source, meaning lower source would be more likely. And, you know, I think, again, Naveen, we're sort of stressing here when the patient initially comes in, how you think about risk stratification. And I do know that there's a few calculators on MD Calc, and that can be part of, you know, guideline-based care. So tell me about how you think, is there a score or two for kind of prediction of risk that you like to reach for? Yeah, you know, when I was a fellow, I did uh, a fair amount of upper GI bleeding research with with really one of the international experts in GI bleeding, Dr. Saltzman, and he developed this the AIMS 65 score. And so just to run by it through it very quickly. So the A stands for albumin less than three. I is an INR above 1.5. M is altered mental status. S is a systolic blood pressure less than or equal to 90 millimeters of mercury. And then A is age greater than or equal to 65. So you get one point for each of those criteria. And so the total score is five. And generally an, an AIM 65 score of zero or one, or one is considered low risk. Two is intermediate. And then three or more is very severe. And all of this um, information that you need to input into the AIM 65 score is readily available on admission. So I really like to use that score, the AIM 65, very good at predicting mortality. And if it's an AIM score of three or more, I am definitely worried about that patient and most likely will be having them go to the ICU for further care. There's another score that's very well validated. It's called the Glasgow Blatchford Bleeding Score or GBS score. And it is actually better at predicting the need for intervention, such as transfusion during an admission for upper GI bleed. So that's a helpful one uh, to know when you're looking at a patient trying to get a sense of how much are they going to need during their admission. It's actually very useful when the score is low. So a, a GBS score of zero or one portends a really good prognosis. And those patients actually can be discharged home from the emergency room. So you may actually find uh, occasionally you'll be receiving an admission page about a patient who's presenting with upper GI bleed who, who appears to be very low risk. And then if you calculate the GBS score and you find it to be zero or one, you are providing evidence-based guideline-based care to say that that patient can be discharged home with close GI follow-up. So I really like that GBS score, particularly for the low risk uh, patients. Thank you, Naveen, for going through those two scores. The AIM-65 score is a great way to sort of provide some objective documentation to that gestalt of, you know, how sick and high risk is a patient coming in and what needs to be the best setting for them to get their care. And then with the GBS score, it's great when you can sometimes save a patient having to actually come into the hospital and just get expedited GI follow-up as an outpatient. So now that we've touched on the risk stratification, let's just return to how, Naveen, you think about really localizing the most likely source of bleed. So assuming this is not a variceal bleed, or at least doesn't seem like it, and the description of the stool is most concerning for an upper source, what is your exact approach anatomically on that framework you had mentioned earlier? Yeah, so I like to use an anatomical approach going from proximal to distal 
upper GI anatomy. And so I will first start in the esophagus. And so when I think about esophageal bleeding sources, if we're if we've excluded varices, I think about esophagitis, which would be higher on my list if the patient has symptoms such as odynophagia or pain on swallowing. I also will be worried about a malignancy in the esophagus if they're endorsing dysphagia or constitutional symptoms such as weight loss. I then move from the esophagus to the GE junction or gastroesophageal junction and think about a Mallory-Weiss tear there. The classic description is a patient having frequent retching episodes of clear fluid and then it turning bloody at the time where the GE junction actually tears. So if I hear that history, I'm thinking about a Mallory-Weiss. Then I go down to the stomach and think about if the patient's on NSAIDs or has a risk for H. pylori that would increase the risk of them having peptic ulcer disease, particularly if they have epigastric pain as well, gastritis, also a possibility. And then there's some lesions that, you know, don't cause symptoms aside from the bleeding, such as an AVM or, or arteriovenous malformation. Um, similarly, a Dulafoy's lesion would cause painless upper GI bleeding. If they have constitutional symptoms like a weight loss, night sweats, as you talked about, malignancy would be higher on my differential. And then, although we're not talking about varices in this episode, there are some associated upper GI bleeding lesions that um, that you see in portal hypertension, and those include GAVE or gastric antral vascular ectasia. This is classically described as the watermelon stomach, or you may also have portal hypertensive gastropathy that can bleed. Again, these are portal hypertensive associated bleeds that are not variceal in origin. So now that we've kind of talked about the stomach, I move further distally to the duodenum, which again, you can have peptic ulcer disease manifest there. You can have AVMs just like in the stomach. And just like you have gastritis in the stomach, you can have duodenitis in the duodenum. And certainly malignancy, a little um, much more rare, can also present in the small bowel. And I think the last uh, type of anatomy, now that we've gone down the duodenum, to discuss is post-surgical. And, and largely by post-surgical, I mean patients who've had ruin y gastric bypass surgery. They have multiple anastomoses that were not that, that do not exist in the normal stomach. And in each of those anastomoses, you can bleed from ulceration. We, we often call these marginal ulcerations. So I think about that if a patient's coming in with an upper GI bleed and, and underwent a ruin y gastric bypass in the past. And then a really good one to, to tuck away is the patient who's had a prior aortic aneurysm graft repair. They are at high risk of developing a fistula between the, their aorta and somewhere in the enteric system, usually the duodenum. So an aortoduodenal fistula can occur. And these are uh, patients that you need to have that diagnosis high on your list because you need to exclude that quickly. If they do have uh, an aortoenteric fistula, they need to go straight to the OR. If it waits until the EGD to get diagnosed, it's often too late. So think about post-surgical states like we just talked about, and then think anatomically, moving proximally uh, to distally through the upper GI tract. All right, so that's what I like to do anatomically for when thinking about the differential diagnosis for the patient. Walker, why don't you take us back and uh, cover these key aspects of management more in detail? Thanks for taking us through that anatomical approach, Naveen. And really what I heard from you there was actually some illness scripts you also associate with certain sources of GI bleeding. So let's dive into the management here. We said initial resuscitation is key, but there's a caveat here that we do know that 
restrictive transfusion parameters actually improve outcomes in GI bleeding. So typically we use a hemoglobin goal of seven, and this is supported by really high quality randomized control trial evidence that this improves mortality, reduces re-bleeding, and leads to less adverse events. There's a few reasons for this, and let's discuss the why of why we decide to manage patients this way. One is that when you're transfusing more red blood cells, you're gonna have a higher incidence of complications like trolley that are transfusion related. And also you can have cardiac complications from volume. A lot of these patients, as we discussed, have cardiac and pulmonary comorbidities. In the actual sort of reasons underlying from a pathophysiology side that are important to remember are the fact that when we're transfusing blood, it is without platelets and clotting factors most of the time. And so this can dilute the patient's ability to clot and they're indeed bleeding whole blood. The other thing is that blood transfusion actually can increase portal pressures. And if you, if you go back to your pathophysiology and think about when a body's compensatory mechanism to adjust for blood volume loss and hypovolemia, part of that is splanchnic vasoconstriction. So when your splanchnic bed is constricting down, the transfusion may actually counteract the body's response to hypovolemia, which can lead to more shunting of blood to the splanchnic system where actually the bleeding is occurring. So it's a little bit counterintuitive, but once you return to your pathophysiologic understanding of what's happening in a patient with hypovolemic or hemorrhagic shock, it makes sense. And you know, a caveat to this is that's important to remember. Sometimes if a patient's having a massive upper GI bleed, it's not like we're and they're unstable or they're in shock and going to the medical ICU. We're not necessarily saying, hey, check another hemoglobin and make sure it's just above seven. Sometimes you do have to give patients a massive transfusion protocol when you're resuscitating them in the acute setting. Another caveat that's important to remember is if the patient's had a cardiovascular disease event in the last 90 days, the guidelines do recommend a hemoglobin goal of eight or greater. It's worth acknowledging that the evidence behind kind of these parameters is mixed and controversial, but that's generally how I think about our reasoning for having the hemoglobin goal of seven that you always see in the GI consultant's notes. And so that said, Naveen, let's talk about proton pump inhibitors. There's always a little controversy with these. The recommendations have changed over the years. I know even since you've been in training. And so can you just share, you know, again, how, how you think about the, the mechanism behind these drugs and how we use them currently? Absolutely. So the idea is that in order to optimize platelet aggregation, we, we do know that ideally you get the pH level above six. And so you want to create that environment in the stomach if the bleeding is coming from the stomach to optimize hemostasis. So that's, the, that's why we think about using IV PPIs because they neutralize the gastric pH above that threshold of, of a pH of six very effectively, very quickly. So that's the idea. Now, what does the evidence show? So randomized controlled trial data shows that if you give an IV PPI before endoscopy, by the time you do the endoscopy, those ulcers are already healing. And so you find those ulcers at a lower risk bleeding state, such that many times you don't have to actually do any endoscopic therapy, like inject epinephrine or use cautery or place a hemostatic clip. You don't have to do as much. Oftentimes it's just a purely diagnostic EGD and then you come out. And the implications of that are length of stay. Because when we do endoscopic therapy, patients have to stay in the hospital longer to receive IV PPI. The recommendations are 72 hours of IV PPI after any intervention. So if you can 
heal those ulcers before the time of EGD, still perform the EGD to confirm hemostasis and the etiology, those patients can go home sooner on a PO PPI. So that's, but I think the important piece here is that whereas you were talking about with the restrictive transfusion strategy, actual mortality benefit, we don't have any data that PPIs improve mortality or, or even like hard clinical outcomes. So just remember that. And I think for that reason, if you look at guidelines, the quality of evidence, the, rec- the recommendation is generally more conditional to use IV PPI. But I think in theory and based on that RCT data, data that you will start healing the ulcers that are bleeding, uh, we generally always use an IV PPI before EGD. And just to mention, when I was a resident, we would use a continuous infusion of PPI where we give an 80 milligram IV bolus, usually a pantoprazole, and then start a drip at eight milligrams an hour. We've shifted more towards using bolus PPI dosing because that's been shown to be non-inferior to the continuous IV infusion. So generally, you know, in our institution, we use protonics 40 milligrams twice daily um, as our PPI method of choice. Thanks for the summary, Naveen. And that's what we do as well. We also just do 40 milligrams IV protonics and go from there. One other just addition that it's worth mentioning is sometimes we will ask uh, for erythromycin or another promotility agent like Reglan to be given 30 to 90 minutes before performing an upper endoscopy. The idea of this is that the motilin-like properties can increase gastric emptying and you can actually clear the retained blood or clots in the stomach. So this is especially important in some cases, I've seen this um, in patients who are in the ICU with COVID and have a hemorrhagic gastritis. In cases where patients may have bled a lot into their stomach, you can actually kind of help clear out um, the stomach of that blood such that the endoscopist can get a, a more thorough view of the gastric mucosa, therefore decreasing the need for relook endoscopy. And just as Naveen was saying, we always want to think about trying to decrease the length of stay for patients since that can be really helpful. It may be also relevant for you know a patient you admit overnight who may need um, an urgent EGD in the ICU. So that does lead to our next question, which is from the primary team's perspective, Naveen, what can they expect from GI in terms of the timing of endoscopy? Um, I know this is always one of the, the things at the forefront of people's minds when they call us for consultation. And I think it'd be helpful to just give an idea of how we think about the different indications for timing. Absolutely. So the first question is, why are we even performing an endoscopy? And if a patient is presenting with an upper GI bleed, there's two potential benefits. One is we can diagnose the issue, the underlying cause of the upper GI bleed, Uh, while also confirming that they have an upper GI bleed. Sometimes we think it's an upper source, but it turns out to be lower or small bowel. So that's the first issue is diagnosis. And then there's a therapeutic benefit, as we were talking about before. If they have a high-risk bleeding ulcer, there's various endoscopic therapies we can uh, apply to help achieve hemostasis and prevent re-bleeding. So then the question comes in about timing. And so the guidelines have fallen to the time threshold of 24 hours that you want to perform an upper endoscopy for a stable upper GI bleed within 24 hours of presentation. Very early in this episode, we were talking a lot about, is this a potential variceal source? Because that will change management. One way that changes management is that an EGD needs to be done within 12 hours for a variceal bleed. So you you have to move much more quickly for a variceal bleed because the mortality is quite high in variceal compared to non-variceal bleed. But if you're fairly confident that's a non-variceal bleed, within 24 hours is the time uh, expectation. And 
you know, this is somewhat, I mean, Walker, you probably felt this too when you got calls overnight about an upper, a stable upper GI bleed. It sounds convenient from the GI perspective that we're not going to come in overnight for every, every upper GI bleed. But this is supported by, by evidence that shows that if you go in more urgently, let's say there's actually RCT data that recently came out that showed that if you go in within six hours, you don't actually improve outcomes you do end up doing more endoscopic therapy because there's been less time on PPI, less time with resuscitation, but you don't actually improve outcomes. So we've really settled on the within 24-hour timeline for performing uh, EGD for stable upper GI bleeds. Uh, and then just remember, again, if you're going in sooner and seeing higher risk bleeding that requires therapy, those patients need to stay in the hospital for 72 hours in IV PPI based on current um, evidence. And so you really do end up lengthening the stay without actually improving their, um, their clinical outcomes. That's really helpful context. Thanks for sharing, Naveen. So let's go ahead and get back to our case. Our 63-year-old gentleman with prior history of cardiac disease who's presenting with two days of melanoma. It turns out he was stable enough to be admitted to the floor. He did have a few more episodes of melanoma and some resting tachycardia that did respond to IV fluids and a transfusion of red blood cells. There was you know, nothing that put him at particularly high risk. His BUN was decreasing as we had hoped with resuscitation. He got um, his IV PPI, BID, and an early EGD was performed within 24 hours the next day, which visualized a peptic ulcer that was no longer bleeding. Just as Naveen mentioned, we do see this. Patients will stop bleeding from their ulcer a lot of times on PPI and with MPO status. And so H. pylori biopsies were taken and he was able to be discharged soon thereafter with outpatient follow-up. Naveen, this has been a great discussion of upper GI bleeding. And I just was hoping you could leave our listeners with the few key top pearls to take away from this episode. Absolutely. So number one, vital signs are vital. Make sure to look at those when your patient with a potential upper GI bleed is coming into the hospital. Assess their stability. If there's hemodynamic instability, you want them in an ICU for a higher level of care. If they're stable, you can kind of initiate the management that we discussed uh, previously. Make sure to prioritize access. You want this, those two large bore peripheral IVs and start resuscitation early, uh, that, that ends up uh, certainly improving outcomes. So number two is, use a fr we always talk about using a framework with any of these episodes on RTL. So I think for upper GI bleeding, use an anatomical one where you think about the proximal to distal upper GI anatomy to kind of even before, essentially before the endoscopy, think about where the source of bleeding is coming. And also, as Walker mentioned, there's some helpful data you can look at um, from your patient's labs. The BUN to CRAN ratio above 30 to 1 is very helpful to localize an upper GI bleed, whereas the presence of blood clots in the stool makes it very unlikely to be an upper GI bleed. So use those two pieces of information when trying to localize the bleed. And then lastly, use evidence-based guidelines to manage patients with upper GI bleed. And so we basically talked about the key parts of those evidence-based guidelines, those being risk stratification, restrictive transfusion strategy of a hemoglobin of seven, IV PPI, which we now are using bolus as opposed to continuous infusion, and then a timely EGD within 24 hours of presentation, but don't rush. Typically, if you go in sooner, like we talked about within six hours, these patients have less time on PPI, less time for resuscitation. They'll have higher risk bleeding lesions, but you won't actually improve the outcomes. Of course, that's different if they have an unstable bleed. And yes, then you certainly have to go in sooner. But if it's a stable bleed, 
Timing of endoscopy is recommended to be within 24 hours of presentation. Thanks again for joining us on Run the List. We look forward to talking with you all next time.